0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Alice Robb. Alice, could you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, I'm a science writer, and I wrote a book called Why We Dream, about the science of dreaming, which came out a few weeks ago. Uh,
0: Yeah, so I have the book here. I'm holding it up. Um, Very nice cover. Um, So... This was a, a really interesting book about i guess a topic that's kind of like universal because everyone dreams at least we think everyone dreams I was actually something I want to ask you maybe later on um but first uh why what what drew you to this particular topic and why did you want to write a book about it
1: i I had always had a pretty pretty vivid dream life and um remembered my dreams a lot and, um, just wondered about them. And, uh, I had a phase in college when I got really into lucid dreaming, which is where you become aware within the dream that you're in a dream and you're able to control what happens in the dream to a certain extent. Um, so that I started doing exercises and meditations to induce lucid dreaming. Um, and that deepened my interest, but I really, um, had just I started working and uh, writing about science um, during my first job, and I wrote a couple of short pieces about new research and dreams and just felt like there was more there and um, wondered what was going on and what we knew about it.
0: Right. Um, so uh, the first part of the book is kind of a like history of our understanding of dreams. Mm -hmm. And, um, could you, so uh, we don't, uh, I won't ask you to go through the entire thing, but can you kind of like go through some of the, the highlights, maybe like pre-Freudian, Freud and Jung, and then like post the post-Freudian era?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the paradoxes that I try to address in the book is like, why did we stop caring about dreams? Like I think it's safe to say that most of us um, think that dreams uh, don't really matter that we shouldn't really talk about them. Um, but throughout history, we've actually most people have considered dreams important. And you know, you look to in the Bible, people are treating dreams as prophecies. And um, ancient doctors would ask their patients about dreams and use them in, in diagnosis and determining treatments. Um, and then. I found some, one of my, some of my favorite uh, stuff that I read were um, like dream diaries from 17th, 18th, 19th century uh, in US and Europe. You see like the founding fathers writing to each other about their dreams. You have, um, I read one book about civil war soldiers, let, uh, the letters they wrote home about their dreams and you see them just as a more a, a part of life that's incorporated um, into their daytime lives. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, even, you know, among people who are supposedly rational and skeptical minded people. Um, and then in the early 20th century, um, we get Freud who most people associate with dreams um, certainly with psychoanalysis appropriately. Um, and he really valued dreams and made them the center of, of psychoanalysis and um, really the center of treatment and believed that um, a lot of our neuroses could be found, uh, could be uncovered by working through our dreams with a therapist. Um, should I? Yeah. <laughs> Keep going
0: through this. Yeah, so I mean, oh, why don't we just pause on, the, pause on the, Freud, Freud okay. um, for a bit. So it, it seemed to me like in some ways he sort of, um, you know, uh, brought a scientific lens to dreams in the first place. Or was the first people to bring a scientific lens to dreams, but also kind of like ruined the idea of dream studies for a long time because so many of his ideas were wrong.
1: Yeah, uh he has a really complicated role in the history of dreams. I'd say um I mean also to back up for a second, I mean the science of dreams definitely got off to a pretty late start uh for some reasons that are obvious. Um it's just hard to study dreams. Um especially a lot of the early studies were just based on um you know people's own reports of their dreams which are not a perfect metric. Um and then, yeah, Freud really gave them this, uh, academic gloss and, um, created a theory that was very, in some ways, intuitive and appealing, um, that dreams represent wish fulfillment, um, and unconscious desires. Uh, but then we see later in the 20th century with the backlash to Freud, um, dreams kind of suffering along with the repu- with Freud's reputation. Mm -hmm. So people in psychology departments didn't want to be associated with Freud. They're trying really hard to get psychology taken seriously as a real science. Uh, And dreams feel like this kind of, you know, mystical, tainted thing that has to be cast off.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about um, Carl Jung? How did he change Freud's ideas or, uh, like, change the the course of scientific understanding of dreams?
1: I mean, Jung was really into dreams, too. I think they're still more associated with Freud. Um, but Jung was famous for like drawing pictures of his dreams. Um, and he also he fought with Freud about the extent to which dreams are about sex. Um, another theory of Freud's that has really penetrated the culture and I think that we still haven't done away with is that dreams are like all symbols and dreams are really sex symbols and everything from climbing a ladder represents sex to a room is a woman because it has an entrance. um, (laughs) That's one of my favorites. Um, So Jung was less into that idea. Um, And I'd say that's another, um, that's another thing that's held dreams back is the way we've sort of They've become taboo almost because of that, because of Freud.
0: Yeah, so there's a um, person who is in the Jungian tradition who has become perhaps the most famous intellectual of our era, and that's Jordan Peterson. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you follow the Jordan Peterson stuff at all, but um, I have a kind of as closely as
1: you
0: do. Yeah, like perverse interest (laughs) in him, (laughs) um, because he he strikes me as so strange. But um, yeah, so he has you know he kind of follows some of the Jungian archetypal stuff. And, um, but I don't know if he, I've never heard him talk about dream stuff. Do you know if he has any thoughts such as they are on dreams?
1: Jordan Peterson? Yeah. I I have not come across him talking about dreams, but, um, if he's a faithful Jungian, then he should, I guess. I mean, Jung believed that dreams were, um, slightly different from Freud, that dreams show us, um, we're trying to compensate for things that were lacking. Um, so that if you have a dream about, uh, so one story that Young Twell tells is of a patient he had who was overly dependent on his father's approval. And so he had a dream about his father acting really irresponsibly and his father was like driving drunk. And then, you know, they analyzed that to, to figure out that the man needed to like, Gain more independence from his father, mm-hmm. so his, yeah, his idea is more that you're in dreams. You're trying to like balance out your psyche, mm-hmm.
0: um, and and part of this, well, I, not to focus on Jung overly, but he had this idea of like the universal unconscious. Or is, that, I, is, that, is that right? Is that the right phrase?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, he had these the idea of archetypes and like the the great mother um, figure and. Various others. I'm slightly rusty on Young. It's funny, no, no, no one else is really asking about Young.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so so Young seems like an interesting figure, and there is this—he's like reappeared in pop culture because of uh, the massive popularity of, of Peterson. But uh, he, but the was the idea that like in the dream you can you can connect to these kind of like um mystical like universal like tropes or ideas um that. Yeah
1: yeah so you had this idea of the collective unconscious, and this is that basically all these things we that we can't quite explain like why have we um developed rituals and religious symbols, and why are some of them why do some of them have similarities across cultures um that it all dates back to like this universal set of symbols that comes from ancient humanity
0: mm-hmm. okay, so then. it's it's um,
1: really an idea that you can you know test it's more a a mystical idea
0: yeah Um, so so then there was a a period in which uh, these ideas were influential but then they they fell out of favor was there specific people saying like this is all (laughs) a crack of shit or, or was it just like kind of faded away because the disciples weren't like pushing it
1: um, well there was a group of psychoanalysts in New York who met in I think the 1960s um, to reevaluate Freud and this is during I and mean, there's like the, the feminist reevaluation of Freud and um, examination of Freud's personal mistreatment of women and um, just Freud falling out of favor um, and this group of psychoanalysts came together and said okay like now we have we have new, better ways to analyze our patients, free association. And we don't, we don't need to bother with dreams anymore. So they are sort of written out of, um, the psychoanalytic, uh, guide.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you, uh, can you, can you describe the, um, the discovery of, uh, REM sleep, which was, I had I didn't know anything about, or I know about the history of it and is pretty unusual
1: yeah um so as I mentioned, the study of dreams got off to a late start, but so did the study of sleep, um, which surprised me because now I think we all we all talk a lot about how important sleep is and we know that you know without it we can't it's, it's much harder to absorb information our health suffers um, but all that awareness is relatively new so until um, the mid 20th century, most scientists thought that, When you sleep, you just kind of shut down. Uh, Not much to study there. And then in the 1950s, um, it's kind of a fluke. This PhD student was um, at the University of Chicago um, was doing a project where he would... It was sort of a a trainee project that he'd been assigned where he would look at babies um, while they were sleeping, and he was supposed to look at, like, count the the track, the rate of their blinking when they were awake and then observe them while they were asleep. And basically he noticed that there were these periods at regular intervals where their eyes would dart back and forth beneath their sockets. Um, and he eventually came to correlate this with, um, with dream phases and found that it, the same thing happens with adults. Um, and called it, he called it rapid eye movement sleep, um, or REM. And that was really the beginning of, um, the scientific study of sleep and the sort of proof that there's, there's something going on that we can at least observe.
0: Mm -hmm. And then what was also uh, so unusual that this was discovered by a graduate student, but also that he kind of like, um, had a career afterwards that didn't like achieve (laughs) it and kind of, fizzled out and uh, is, was, is kind of like a forgotten figure.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something you see with a lot of the pioneers in, in sleep and dream research, that because it's been at, at various points, such a small field and sort of a forgotten field, that um, someone like, yes, this man, Eugene Aserinsky, um didn't have much of a career. Um, someone else in his lab was William Dement, who went on to... He's been known as the father of sleep research. He's been at Stanford for decades and has his own lab. But Azarinsky just sort of um, faded away,
0: um, like a dream. Uh, sorry, sorry for that one. Um, so, okay, so uh, so then, so what so what happens during rapid eye movement that is that is connected to dreaming? Is it that you are looking around in your dream at the different things, and that's why your eye is moving, or are those not connected?
1: So yeah, um, it's called the the scanning hypothesis, which actually um, uh, Eugene Astorinsky, that was he sort of intuited that that might be what's going on that your eyes that your eyeballs are following the motions of things that are happening within the dream, um, and he I mean he tested it you know in not the most definitive way but like he asked he would ask people when they'd wake them up while their eyes were moving and. Ask what was going on and try and correlate that to you know see that okay they're having a really violent nightmare. Um, are their dreams move are are their eyeballs moving more rapidly? Um, and then yeah, so William Dement went on to study um, that idea more. He found I mean there was one one dream he found where like he he cor- he would he would correlate the dream content to different movements. So like to the volley of a uh, ping pong ball going back and forth over the table, um, or climbing up the stairs moving your eyeballs. Um, and there's, there have been, I mean, it's not, I think it, it's still, there are aspects of this that are still up in the air, but there have been, um, one piece of, one study that I found convincing that, um, showed that people who, so people who, um, are blind sometimes see in their dreams. Depends on the age at which they lost their sight. So, um, if you lost your sight before the age of um around five, then you tend not to have sight in your dreams. Um whereas you lose it after you can still see in your dreams. And the there's there was a study that found that the earlier people lost their sight in real life, the less um eye movement they had during REM sleep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so, help me if my chronology is wrong, but kind of along this time, so this is like fifties to sixties, um, dream science was like, you know, a back burner issue. And then it kind of, it was still kind of associated with some of these mystical paranormal, um, ideas. And there was emphasis for a while among actual scientists, um, on, like psychically, um, like beaming ideas into a dreaming person's mind, and uh, or 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 something along those lines. Can you talk about that that era?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a really fun chapter to to research. Um, but there were in the in the sixties, seventies, uh, there were labs all over the place at at UVA, at Princeton, um, investigating paranormal activity and telepathy um and i mean there was a lab at maimonides medical center in brooklyn where um the psychologists would try to like they would put one person uh in a room and then you know that person goes to sleep and someone else tries to uh, stares at a painting and tries to transmit the image to the person who's asleep. And, I mean, they developed some pretty, like, impressive methodologies with, you know, like, the the pictures and the envelopes and they were analyzing them, but um I think most of those have, yeah, not really stood up to further testing.
0: Right, so there was, the, there was one guy in particular who did at least one study that like, was rigorous and was able, and sh- and like, showed that this kind of, um, you know, paranormal, is that the right word for it? It's like extra, extra sensory or something. Um, stuff is like, did, (laughs) you know, came out in in the results, but then no one, people who retested (laughs) this idea, um, uh, were not able to replicate the findings.
1: Yeah. And I mean, another, (laughs) another story I really liked was, um, in the sixties in England, someone set up, a premonitions bureau, where he would try to collect, uh, dreams from people, like, all over the UK, uh, that, to, that were supposed to predict, like, natural disasters. Um, and his idea was that we would be able to use this, uh, as, as a warning system.
0: Right. You tell, you tell the story in there that there was, um, a kind of like industrial accident that a, pi- like, was it in Wales that, like, a pile yeah. of coal ash or something collapsed onto a school and, like, a hundred children were killed. So this huge, um, you know tragedy and then people started coming forward saying they had like before before the accident they they had had like a dream about like blackness coming down or something along those lines and that's that seemed to be uh prophetic of of the event
1: yeah so he this person heard about who was interested in uh predictive dreams um heard about this this disaster and went out and solicited dreams from people like asking anyone who'd um who dreamed about, you know, a coal mine or basically any kind of nightmare to send them in. Um, and yeah, I mean, collected some examples that were, were striking, but first they were collected after the fact, so. Pretty
0: yeah, hard. and this, I mean, this, you know, uh, is one example, and there's others in the books of the, uh, in the book of, you know, the, um, various ways you can interpret any given dream or an event in any given dream and see it as, uh, you know, so Freud maybe saw it as representative of sex or something, and uh, other people saw it as representative of a future event, and then mm-hmm. I guess today we're most likely to think it's uh, represents like a, it's like a conflict we're having um, or some kind of interpersonal problem or an emotional problem and maybe this is like a way to... Um, you know, it, the dream and interpreting it offers a way to, um, understand it. Uh, so this, we're, this is out of order, but this, this would be a good time to discuss the, um, the dream group that, sure. that you participated in. Um, can you, t- t- I had never heard of this before, but it's that interesting and I wanted, I wanted to, uh, go to one after hearing your, uh, <laughs> your description of it.
1: Um, well, in fact, it's, it's a good thing because, uh, one of the guys who, who, was a leader of these telepathy studies at Maimonides. Um, after he left in the 80s, he developed a uh this this dream group model. Um, and his idea, he he wanted to democratize um, psychotherapy and make it possible for people to analyze their own dreams in groups without, you know, paying to go to an analyst. Um, and he developed this model that is not it feels not dissimilar from a writing workshop if you've ever done one of those mm-hmm. um in the way it's sort of ritualized and um just it though a lot of it feels a bit like a passage analysis um so i'll first explain what happens so um the dream group will be you know maybe anywhere from six to ten or twelve people um and at each session just one person brings a dream and everyone analyzes just that dream. Uh, and it can be anything from a sentence to, um, you know, a whole page and you follow these structures. So um, first the person reads the dream aloud, and then everyone uh, asks the person questions to clarify what happened in the dream. Um, so what Freud would call the manifest content, just what, what appears and what you experience um and then the dreamer for the next phase uh, has to be silent and everyone else talks about what they would feel if it had been their dream so you imagine that you would have that dream and you talk about like what you know if there was a best friend in the dream what would it that your best friend what feelings would that evoke or um you know how does it relate to your life and then you ask the dreamer questions about her own associations um with the dream and they hopefully have found that some of the other people's interpretations um resonate or make her think of things she hadn't thought about so it's not like a definitive uh way to interpret a dream but it is what i found um really great and surprising about it was just that it is possible to draw so much from a single dream and just, you know, I think people often wake up from their dreams and just feel overwhelmed and confused and don't know how to even begin approaching, trying to understand where it came from and just that you can get so much out of um, a single dream and that it's actually interesting and fun. Um, I mean, I, I, did one dream group that I thought was going to be, you know, a few pages in my book. And then the group of friends that I did it with has continued to meet every month for more than two years. Um, and we just do it because it's fun.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, like I said, I, it made me want to uh, participate in one, although I, um, I rarely, uh, remember my dreams and have never done like a dream journal, which I'm sure would help remember them better. um,
1: um- a lot of people in the dream group have found that um, that being in the dream group has helped them remember their dreams more um, because they're more they're just more motivated to. Um, and as you started to mention before, even if you're someone who doesn't remember your dreams that often, you are still dreaming every night. Um, and it's usually not that hard to improve your dream recall.
0: Right. So, um, so it's the case that you almost, that people almost always don't remember the dream that, they only remember the dream that, that is before they wake up, but you're having other dreams throughout the night.
1: Right. So you're having, uh, most of your dreams take place during REM phases. Um, and you have a REM phase every time you go through a complete sleep cycle. So, which is about every 90 minutes. Um, and the REM phases get progressively longer over the course of the night. So the first one might be 10 or 15 minutes. And then um, later towards the morning, it can be as long as an hour. Um, And so if you are someone who just, you know, goes to bed at bedtime and sleeps through the night and wakes up in the morning, then you're probably just going to remember the dream that you just woke from. Um, But if you, you know, if you wake up to go to the bathroom or if you just, uh, wake up because you don't sleep that well, um you might have more opportunities to remember the dreams that you're having um at different
0: points in the night. hmm Um so yeah, so the the analysis of dreams, you know, brings us like back to Freud and also, you know, the Bible and the and, uh, Joseph's dream about the seven cows or fourteen cows or whatever. Um but I guess one thing I was wondering was was you know, I I there's this idea that like um The If you have a dream about an object, then there's, like, a universal meaning for that object, so that's, like, a naive idea about what dreams mean, and I remember what, like, in the very early internet of the, like, 90s on, like, America Online, I found some, like, dream meaning, like, thing and was reading it, being like, oh, that's what, so that's what that means? But, but it it doesn't seem like that's true. And it seems like it's very open to interpretation. Maybe mm-hmm. some things, there are some kind of tropes that have, um, more consistent meanings. Um, but other ones seem very open to interpretation to me. So like, if you see your father in the dream, well, maybe it represents actually your father or maybe it represents authority or like you could cycle it out. Like, uh, you know, like an English, <laughs> an English class stu- student would, um, and then you there's one you just, I, so one theme in my dreams is um over the years is um my teeth falling out and that's you write about how that's a very common one and that has developed some like accepted meaning related to like anxiety or something which would have surprised me uh, based on my life history um but uh yeah so i, I guess it's in some ways the, like the dream group seemed really interesting but also it kind of seemed like well, Everyone's just giving their interpretation, and you just pick whichever one you want, and that's fine. Um, if that one you know makes you happy or helps you in some way, but like, there's no actual, I don't know, there's I, I'm like looking for a there's no like answer in the dream or key to unlock the dream or something that's like, oh, that one meant that you need to do X, like that's that's never gonna happen. I don't know, so I'm kind of rambling, but what? yeah, well,
1: no, I mean, it, it's. There's definitely no, you know, there are lots of, like, dream dictionaries and stuff like that online, but those are really more like, as you say, like, like sort of astrology. Um, but what what you can do, and we all dream differently. We all have different dream sort of motifs and themes and characters that recur for us. Um, but what you can do is if you, um, you know, if you really are paying attention to your own dreams and tracking them over time... Um, you can notice if you have a certain dream that recurs and if that tends to occur during like times of stress or, um, one thing that I thought was really interesting was, um, there've been some analyses of like the dream, dream diaries from people who've kept them over, uh, their entire lives. And these have actually found that people like tend to dream very consistently. Um, so, I mean, I'm thinking of one uh, analysis woman who kept a dream journal for like 50 years. And there were certain patterns like, I think it, in one out of 10 dreams, she was missing a bus and her mother turns up in one out of four dreams. But then certain other things change and those relate to what's going on in her life. So there are more dreams of, you know, at, at, in middle age when she was, like getting divorced and feeling more lonely you know they're more dreams that involve strangers rather than friends that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um but yeah so the teeth falling out so there are certain universal tropes um like like flying and falling um and teeth falling out is one that is really interesting because it doesn't um I mean it's not something that happens a lot in our adult lives but it is a really common it's found across all cultures. Um, and <clears throat> I mean there've been lots of like a, a funny psychoanalytic interpretations. Um, one was that uh it represents a desire to return to the toothless state of babyhood. Uh-huh. Um, but more <laughs> more sort of recent theories are like that it can be related to grinding your teeth um, or just like dental there was one study that compared people who have recurrent dreams of their teeth falling out with people who have recurrent dreams of flying and found that the people with the two dreams tended to have a little bit more anxiety in their lives but also to have more uh, more dental problems
0: <laughs> I do it
1: just reflect
0: yes yeah, so, so it, it would make sense uh, yeah, it if you have dental be. problems that you're dreaming about <laughs> your teeth filling out but also like when you said that it maybe maybe in um you know back a hundred thousand years ago when humans were coming into their like current stage of evolution uh our teeth fill out more often because we didn't have modern well, dental care
1: well there's one idea also that i mean that there's an evolutionary an evolutionary idea about why we dream which is that um we're, we're dreaming in order to rehearse for stressful real life events. Um, and that our ancestors would use dreams to, you know, practice hunting and gathering. Um, and that, that the idea is that this is why we have a lot of dreams that put us in like kind of primal environments. Like even if we live in the city, we might dream of being in the woods or um, like encountering animals that aren't really a part of our life. Um, and so the teeth fit into this theory because, um, I mean, the idea is that the like, teeth were more, <laughs> were m- more pivotal
0: to our survival
1: um, in the old days.
0: Right. So if if you like lost all your teeth, you might die soon in uh, you know ten thousand years ago. Um, so why, you know, if if the idea if there's a possible interp- idea of why we dream. Uh, the title of your book, is that it kind of like is a, um, you know, we're rehearsing future things and working things out. And we can talk about the Tetris study a little bit also. Um, mm-hmm. Why why is there this surreal aspect to dreams when that is not a reflection of, um, of actual lived experience? Um,
1: so there's a, di- when you're dreaming, your frontal lobes, which are the logic centers of your brain, are, are, sort of dormant and we're working in this wider network of associations. So you're, you're drawing, you know, you're combining recent experience with stuff that from your that you might not even remember from years ago. Um, It's just sort of a looser um, time in our brains, Um, which is also why, you know, a lot of people, artists and inventors have used dreams to, um, to come up with new ideas that, you're also just—it's sort of on a spectrum um, with with mind wandering and free associating during the day. Um, the way that you're just you're just thinking in a more uh, creative, loose way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, so I guess maybe I'm trying to impose logic on it when it is inherently illogical. But it does—I don't know. Like, did our ancient ancestors have like dreams of like a flying? you know, saber tiger or something. And wouldn't it wouldn't have made more sense for them not to have a flying saber-toothed tiger, but a landbound bound saber tiger, because that's what they would have had to deal with. So, but maybe that, maybe I'm just thinking well, about mean, it in a silly well, way. I
1: mean, no, I mean, there's, like, a lot of dream, times in dreams um, we're encountering scenarios that are much, much scarier than the ones that we encounter in the day. So if you are fighting with a saber-toothed tiger that can fly, I mean, maybe you wake up and you think, okay, well, you know, still the saber-toothed this is still scary, but at least they don't
0: Yeah, fly. yeah. okay, that, yeah, that's, I, I like that. Yeah, you know, it, it could be worse. Um, uh, so, why don't we talk about the the study that involved um, playing Tetris? Uh-huh. Um, can you describe that study and what that taught us about uh, our ability to like kind of learn and practice things while we're while we're dreaming?
1: Yeah, so this was a study in the '90s, um, and it was important also just because it showed that um, it was one of the first times that dreams were really studied in the lab and the, uh robert stickles who led the study was able to say something meaningful based on a lab study of dreams um so what he found was that um first of all he noticed that he he was hiking uh a difficult trail on vacation and noticed that as he was falling asleep he was replaying parts of the trail that had been especially challenging and thought you know, is there some way to study, um, to look at, like, are we, are we going back to things that were, um, difficult during the day, are we practicing in our dreams, and then, um, uh, when he got back to, I think he was at Harvard then, um, where he is now, um, I was looking for a way to do this in the lab, and a student mentioned that, um, he would play Tetris during the day and then at night he would dream of falling bricks, um, which is also an experience that I've had, um, (laughs) which I took as a sign that I should stop playing Tetris so much. (laughs) Um, But so Stickgold designed a study where he would have students play Tetris for a couple of hours a day for three days and then um, record their dreams and found that most of them um, were then dreaming of, whether or not there were, so, so some might be dreaming of directly, like, falling bricks in exactly the way that they'd seen them during the day, but others were, you know, dreaming of, like, they were sort of incorporate like, the, the, dr- the bricks might be shiny, or they might be incorporating sort of different experiences. Um, and then, uh, he found that, <laughs> um one of the other really interesting parts of this study was he also taught he, uh, patients with amnesia who couldn't form new memories to play Tetris um, and found that even they were having dreams about um, about tiles or bricks, even though they couldn't consciously remember um, the rules to the game or what Tetris was, they were still having some kind of like learning going on in sleep. Um, which could explain why they, they improved slightly, even though they weren't, they they still had to be told again and again how to play.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so this, this implies that the, um, one purpose of dreaming is like, yeah, working out, working out problems and rehearsing things that, um, might later, uh, you know, have a practical, um, benefit. And that you know, like that makes sense. You know, similar to like thinking about hunting a saber toothed tiger or something. Um, so there's uh, you do you have a chapter on um, nightmares on here, uh, and you know I think those are like probably the more memorable dreams for most people. I, I have a couple nightmares that I remember very strongly. Um, what is why do we have nightmares? That that seems on its face like to make less sense than why we have like pleasant dreams.
1: Um, So one thing that, when scientists started looking at dreams um, systematically in the mid-20th century, they found that dreams were just much more unpleasant than anyone had thought. Um, Especially, I mean, Freud's whole idea was that dreams represent wish fulfillment, Um, but then it turned out that dreams are much more, like, the most common feelings in dreams are anxiety, fear, guilt, helplessness. Um, They were really... Pretty nasty things, um, and I mean that. So that's why um, these evolutionary psychologists went looking for an explanation of like why are we having these awful experiences, and hypothesized that um, we're doing it to prepare, um, for, and that, that by practicing the worst case scenarios. So if you think of something like, um, you know, if you have you ever dreamed of turning up for an exam naked, or didn't take the class, or...
0: Yeah, yeah, I've, I, I've have uh, uh the version I have is, um, there was a class I signed up for, and it's the end of the semester, and I forgot about it, and never went to any of the classes, but now I'm gonna get a failing grade.
1: Yeah, um, so, like, some people find that they have those dreams when they're stressed about something else, like, I, I still have that dream, like, all the, like, when I'm I'm having a lot of exam dreams in the run-up to my book being released. Um, And then, I don't know, I've personally found, like, there's a sense of relief when I wake up and it's like, okay, well, I have to launch a book, but at least I don't have to, like, take my chemistry exam. Um, And there was actually one uh, study that found that, um, of of French medical students um, that found that the more... Nightmares they were having about the exam, the better they actually performed mm-hmm. um, and that these nightmares were very common, and that um like most people were even having them the day before the exam, but they seem to have a positive effect on performance,
0: okay, so it's kind of like kicking you in the ass or something saying <laughs> like if you if you're yeah. still i mean it's 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 interesting that like the you know showing up naked for classroom or or the test that you didn't anticipate is like a universal dream um and also that people continue to have it long after they've left uh school like that you know is so imprinted in our minds that we're still having it one of my recurring dream themes is that um my childhood home and my elementary school have like merged into one building and i'm going from like you know like the hallway like one door will lead to my bedroom, one door will lead to the library or something like that um yeah but the, it, 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 is, it is like shrinking. how <laughs> these things uh, stick in our minds um there's uh, one thing that you you mentioned one or two times in the book, um, but I wonder if you know more about it, which is like uh, sleep paralysis and the t- kinds of dreams that that people have under sleep paralysis um, so.
1: I actually don't really talk directly about sleep paralysis, which, um, sorry, maybe you can cut this question. <laughs> it's just slightly different, uh, it's like a slightly different thing. I talk about, um, I think it's like sleep terrors, um, which are, you're talking about the dog sog, um, the Hmong men, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Nightmares can have a real effect on the body. Um, they can induces the same stress response that you might have if you encounter something frightening. In the day, if your heart's racing. Um, you might sweat. Um, and there have been a few cases where people appear to have um, had like heart attacks preceded by really terrifying nightmares. Um, the suggestion that there's a relationship between those two. Um, And then there's just a lot of cultural beliefs about, um, like, demons that come in nightmares and that, um, you know, predict your death. And there was one sort of disturbing story that I came across of um, these men in the um, 1980s who had immigrated from Vietnam Uh, to mostly to the Midwest, Midwestern U.S. Um, And there was an epidemic, a mysterious epidemic of uh, otherwise healthy men in their 30s uh, dying in their sleep. And um, I read this book by an anthropologist, Shelley Adler, who investigated um, and found that they had a belief that... um, this sort of evil hag uh, would would come in your sleep and um, warn you. You know, if you weren't fulfilling the proper um, ritual requirements, um, and that if she came three times, um, you would die. And um, the men who were who were dying seemed to they they also had like cardiac sort of cardiac problems, but they also had this belief in so there's sort of a um, combination of physical and psychological.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that part is was uh, crazy to, to read about, and the idea that this cultural belief could like uh, lead directly to their to their deaths um, was was surprising. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there's they were also like experiencing a lot of. Stress and poverty, um, but it, it seems like it was sort of an interaction between the, the beliefs and the simple
0: problems. Um, so some, sometimes, so I usually or uh, almost always read a book uh, before going to bed and or in bed before falling asleep. And I um, I know when it's time to put the book away when I st- like my consciousness starts to kind of s- slip into like surreality or like I'll read. A sentence and and then I'll like, like think about it for a second and realize that couldn't have been on the page or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not, that can't be REM sleep because I'm like basically still awake or, or falling into unconsciousness. Right. Or like, what do, is there any idea what, what's happening there?
1: Um, so those are called hypnagogic images that you're experiencing. Um, and they're not, you, you tend to not fall directly into REM sleep, um, unless you know, you're, you're very sleep deprived or you've, um, you're selectively deprived of REM, which can happen if uh, if you're a recovering alcoholic or um, recovering from some other like drug that has artificially suppressed REM. Um, but no, hypnagogia are a normal part of sleep, um, and some people use them actually to like to go into a lucid dream. Uh, you can train yourself to like follow those images. Um while well, so like with your mind while well, letting your body fall asleep. Mm-hmm. I've never actually managed to do this, but uh some people find that like a reliable way to induce lucid dreams.
0: Um well that's that's a good um segue into uh the part of the book where we talk about lucid dreaming <laughs> and um both you and this guy um LaBurge, um who is one of the uh ec- kind of guru experts Mm-hmm. On the topic, and you went to a retreat, um, kind of event, uh, that he hosted in Hawaii, uh, which sounded cool. Uh, so can you, so pro- most people probably know what luc- lucid dreaming is, but how would you define it for, if people haven't heard of it before?
1: Um, so the simplest explanation is it's just when a lucid dream is a dream in which you're aware that you're in a dream. Uh, and there are sort of different levels of lucidity. So on a really basic level, you could just, know that you're in a dream um, on a say more advanced level, you can really like stabilize the dream and decide to take certain actions and exert control over um, the plot of the dream. I mean, one thing that does actually surprise people is I think sometimes people think of like inception and they think, Oh, lucid dream means you can just do whatever you want. Um, but there's still like sort of, you still have to learn how to do things like you to practice, if you want to fly, or you know, if you have to practice to prolong
0: the lucid dream. Um, yeah. So how um, how did it kind of seems like that in, in a way the, the idea of lucid dreaming was like your entry point into this whole entire topic. Um, mm-hmm. In the first chapter, you talk about uh, finding a book by LeBurge, and um, uh, find it really interesting. So yeah, what um, what like what is that? What is the lucid dreaming Ability, like say about why we do dream.
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not. Sh- I haven't really thought about it that way. Um, I mean, from the brain's point of view, it is a slightly different state. Um, it's thought of as like a hybrid state of consciousness. Um so, even though you are asleep, um, your frontal lobes, which are usually disengaged during dreams, are more active. Um, I'm not sure what it says about why we dream. um I mean for most people who who lucid dream, still the vast majority of your dreams are are regular dreams. Um, I mean I met I met one person who seems to have had only lucid all of her dreams have been lucid since childhood, so like three or four times a night she has lucid dreams um but she's like been studied a few times, and um i think people, she and people like her are pretty unusual
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah so I guess like is a lucid or is the ability to lucid dream kind of like a, uh, like, like you use the spandrel metaphor that I think Stephen Jay Gould came up with. Like, it's kind of like an accident that we, that mm-hmm. you can practice and, and take some me- measure of conscious control in your dream. Is that just an evolutionary accident or like, I mean, I think, <laughs> is it, is there some like practical, like you can see a practical use for it of being like, being able to like practice something. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I think that's kind of an open question. Um. I mean, you could argue that it can't be that important because for most people, most people don't really do it naturally and have to train themselves. Um, But on the other hand, more than half of people do have a lucid dream at some point in their lives. It's not that uncommon. Um, And people have been writing about it for thousands of years. Um, Yeah, I mean, there there are practical applications. You can kind of hack lucid dreaming and, as you say, use it to practice for things i mean there have been small studies of um like people practicing a task in the lab like throwing a uh, tossing a coin into a cup that kind of thing and then taking a nap and dreaming of having lucid dream about it and then like improving their performance but um i mean i think those and then there have been real some real applications for um like anxiety and just sort of emotional um psychological benefits of you know confronting like summoning someone who you have maybe someone who's died who you have unfinished business with you can like summon them in a lucid dream and achieve some sort of resolution that can feel very meaningful Mm -hmm. um the person who i mentioned who has lucid dreams every night had actually found that she could um she struggled with anxiety um, when she was younger and she found that she could sort of hypnotize herself with an elusive dream to be less anxious, um, like tell herself, you know, she was in therapy at the time and she, she uh, was really struggling with anxiety and didn't know how to solve it. And then she decided to go into a lucid dream and say to herself, like, you will be anxiety-free tomorrow and found that that had um, a very effect on her hmm. life
0: um, so uh, if, if someone is interested in lucid dreaming and wants to learn more uh, what should they do
1: um, so the first thing before you start trying to lucid dream is just to improve your, your recall for your regular dreams um, so you can do that by, um, by keeping a dream journal it's probably the easiest most effective way um, it doesn't. Have, it could be a physical dream journal. It could be you could speak your your dreams into your phone, type them up on a computer, um, and just doing that every time as soon as you wake up, like before any anything you do to engage with the world uh, outside your dream can um, sort of shake off the memory of the dream. Um, and you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, jot something down, and then uh, dreams are just really. Uh, Susceptible to intention. If you say to yourself before bed, I want to remember my dreams. Sounds kind of woo, but it really works. Um, and then just incorporating like thoughts of dreams into your daily life. So reading a book about dreams, for example. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, talking about dreams. That'll all help. And then, so once you've got your, once you're remembering one or two dreams a night, um, you can start doing exercises that are more specifically designed to induce lucid dreams. Um, so the main thing that uh, Stephen LaBerge talks about in his book and on his retreat is doing what's called what he calls reality tests. So that's when you ask yourself if you're awake or asleep. Um, and he says that you should do this, uh, you know, ten or twelve times a day and do some kind of physical thing with your body to really check if you're awake. So you might, you know, poke your hand with your finger, and if your finger goes through, then you know you're in a dream. Um, like, plug your nostrils and see if you can breathe, that kind of thing. Um, and the idea is, you, if you do this enough, then you'll start doing it when you're asleep, and you'll ask yourself a question, and you'll know that you're in a dream. And there are various other things which... Um, Stephen verge goes into in his books in much more detail
0: than I do mm-hmm. um, yeah it's funny you mentioned uh, reading about dreams because the um a couple of nights ago when I was reading uh, your book I had the um most like the longest and most coherent dream I've had in like a couple of years um it, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't lucid it was you know kind of a normal normal dream more or less but um yeah, I remembered it. It lasted a long time. Um,
1: I mean, a lot of people tell me that, like, after talking to me about my book, or you know, <laughs> seeing me, they'll they'll have a more vivid dream. <laughs> interesting effect to have on people's psyche.
0: <laughs> yeah, for yeah, for sure, There's more power than most authors have. I guess. <laughs> um, so maybe maybe one more question. This one is a little odder. So I was talking about this the book with uh, my wife, and we're talking about dreams, and uh she said in her her dreams um is it, it she knows it's a dream in the dream and she feels like it's more like watching a movie um and uh, so there's like a disconnection between um her like self in the dream and what's happening um i think that's probably more unusual so like my dreams it's more like i'm on a like amusement park ride where i'm kind of just, like strapped in and things seem to be happening to me directly and uh, although I've had like two lucid dreams in my life, it's almost always, you know, just like I'm along for the ride and don't seem to have any volition and believe that what's happening in the dream is real at the, at the time, whereas she, she <laughs> according to her, doesn't, you know, knows it's a dream, although she doesn't have like, I don't know if she's had like lucidity mo- moments or at least she's not like <laughs> working on that. So is, yeah. is, is that like more unusual that kind of this, my wife's uh kind of dreaming?
1: That so she's aware that it's a dream.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- th- more like a movie that where, it's yeah, she, she knows it's a dream and just kind of, like, passively watching.
1: Yeah. Well, hmm. I mean, that does sound like it's on the lucidity spectrum. I mean, I would be curious if she started doing any of the lucid dreaming exercises. It's, like, it sounds like she probably has a lot of aptitude for lucid dreaming. <laughs> um, the idea of watching dream and not participating in it, um, I haven't heard about as much, um, the only thing that comes to mind is a study of um, children that found that um, becoming like an active player in your own dreams uh, corresponded with crossing a certain cognitive threshold, mm-hmm. uh, but that tended to happen around age 10. So I imagine that's not relevant for your wife. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, our dreams are very idiosyncratic and, Definitely a lot that we still don't know.
0: Yeah, that's uh you know, along with like our inner monologue and consciousness, it's one of the things that like only you only have access to your own, truly yeah. and uh and you could never really experience anyone else's. Um so do you have anything else you want to say about, about um the book or dreams in general?
1: Um I mean I guess if I have, if I have one takeaway, it would just be that even if you think you're not dreaming you are dreaming and it takes very little effort to remember your dreams and see what's going on during the, you know, two hours that you're doing it every night.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. that That's, you know, the, I, the idea that like there's them, you're having all these dreams that are just like that for the vast majority of people just like are evaporating and, um, <laughs> and you have no memory of them, but they did, that happen is like kind of crazy to think about. Right, um,
1: I mean, just what ideas you're coming up with and forgetting and, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So the book, the book is uh, "Why We Dream: of The Transformative Power of Our Nightly Journey." Um, so you're, uh, so you have a website, and you're also on Twitter. Those links will be below. But do you want to say uh, what those links are for people who want to check out more of your work?
1: Uh, AliceRob.com and my Twitter is at Alice L Rob.
0: Uh, cool. So, uh, thanks so much, uh, for coming on and talking about the book. I, I, enjoyed it a lot. I encourage people who are interested in, in this, uh, topic, um, to check it out. And, uh, yeah, and we all have dreams. So if you, maybe if you don't think they're, they're important, you're, it's still like part of your life experience. Um, uh, so thank you, uh, Alice. Thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.